Hi, and welcome to F&B Soundbites, the podcast for professionals working in the engine room of the food and beverage industry. Today, we've got something a little bit different. I'm joined by two people, James Ludford-Brooks and Tom Brennan, who are going to talk about different aspects of the brewing and distilling industry. I think they both bring something interesting and unique to the conversation, which you'll enjoy listening to, I'm sure. James Ludford-Brooks, welcome, James, to the podcast. James is, uh, has joined us in Becca about three years ago and comes from a wealth of experience globally in the brewing and distilling sector. So he's been spending the last couple of years with us exploring the markets in Australia, the distilling and brewing markets. Welcome, James. Hi, Hamish. Also, we're joined by Tom Brennan, who's a hazardous areas specialist. Tom is interested in making industrial workplaces safer for people who work in them and the communities they are within as well. Welcome, Tom. Hi, Hamish. Thanks. So I'll start with you, James. You've been working in the sector a long time, and I know you're uh, particularly passionate about brewing and products that are created from the process. Since you've been in Australia, you've had a lot of exposure as well to the distilling sector. I'm really interested in your take on what's happening in the market, what's driving the growth, and what you're seeing really at the moment. Sure. So yeah, mid-2018, I came across there's probably about 100 Australian distillers at that stage. And in the last couple of years, that's grown very, very quickly up to just over 250, I think, at the last count. So it's really, really building very, very quickly. I think also when I arrived, effectively brewing was was a little bit flat. You still had this duopoly between effectively line and CUB. And the overall volumes were quite flat, if not declining a little bit, especially around brewing. What's driving that? Consumers are looking for a bit more choice. There's a little bit of neo-prohibitionism these days as well in terms of trying to reduce the amount of alcohol that you're drinking. There's a feeling that any alcohol is bad for your health and people are generally starting to reduce that alcohol intake. But when they do drink, they like to drink something of better quality than Mm. perhaps they used to. So quality rather than quantity as it's changed over the generation, really. If you think about how it's changed generation as well, drinking attitudes are changing generally across the world, and especially here in Australia and New Zealand, I think. You tend to lead the way in terms of healthy lifestyle, certainly compared to where I'm from, the UK and Europe. And one of the reasons why I came here, actually, I'm a lot healthier for it already. That's quite right, actually, James. <laughs> I must admit that uh, that my uh, wife enjoys having a gin RTD at the beach, but if it's low sugar, that's great as well because it makes it a healthy drink. Yeah, absolutely. We're all trying to do that. But at the same time, Australia is also tending to follow the UK and US trend. I think UK, mm. obviously, traditionally has always had a love affair with gin. You see the history through the 1700s and 1800s. It was called Mother's Ruin at that stage, but in the last few years, there's been a renaissance in the UK with gin. The sales volume, I think, in 2019 suddenly tripled. And here, it's kind of the same, but what's really great is is that Australia, traditionally not well known for innovating, is innovating within the spirit space. It's producing better gins than they can do in the UK, and they're getting rewarded very, very highly for it. And I've worked with Archie Rose as well. It's a very innovative process. Australia is not shackled by the old traditions of UK and Europe. They're not having to distill to particular Scotch whisky standards. They pay reference and homage to them, but they're not bound by them, which makes it very, very exciting because then Archie Rose can do very innovative processes and new things that create new and better tasting products, in my opinion. And that's why they're doing so well on the world stage. Tasmania, of course, has a great environment, very similar to Scotland as well. 
and a great malt industry as well. So they're, you know, and, and the heritage has kind of come across. So they've got a very, a very good base to work from, excellent water, excellent malt. And they're producing great whiskies as well, which are getting good awards around the world. And that's growing interest across the globe, really. So it's been very exciting over the last three years to be here and to see that and to be able to contribute to that as it's grown. That's really interesting, actually, that there's a potential for a technology step change in Australia because they aren't bound to the old traditions or the old, even the old infrastructure, I guess, as well. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I'm kind of a career engineer rather than a head distiller, effectively. So the work that I've been doing has been around sustainability and providing engineering solutions and reducing carbon footprints because distilling isn't a industry which it's easy to be clean. Effectively, 10% of what you're making is product and the other 90% is waste. So trying to find uses for that 90% is quite difficult, especially for anyone planning a distillery. We can employ all sorts of innovative technologies like vacuum distilling. So we use less heat. We can use heat pumps to recover heat. We can use thermal vapour recompression around those stills. And Australia is particularly receptive to those types of technologies, which otherwise wouldn't get over the line in the UK and the EU, because they simply don't want to take a risk. So it's been good fun. What we're seeing, of course, is that companies won't really have a choice. They'll have to actually clean up their processes over the next few years, as globally we're all striving to meet carbon targets. So, James, what are some of the other challenges that you're seeing clients having to contend with when they're setting up a new distillation plant? Well, apart from trying to deal with that waste factor like pot ale and all the other stuff, obviously dealing with ethanol and handling ethanol is potentially hazardous. It has a relatively low flash point, which makes it quite potential to form explosive atmospheres if it's not handled correctly. And it sometimes just needs an ignition source. What we are finding is that obviously because there's an amount of distillers is growing very rapidly, they're obviously building from a relatively low knowledge base often. And also the access to those resources can be quite difficult when you're trying to start a new business. So what we're finding is, is that sometimes a bit of advice at the early stage can help distillers to avoid making basic mistakes, but also making sure their plants pragmatically installed keeping it safe so that there aren't any other secondary issues. And I think what we're also trying to do is look at the example from the US. In the US, there are 2,000 craft distillers now. And and over the period of the last sort of 10 or 12 years, they've had about seven serious incidents within craft distilling. And we're keen to try and avoid that here in Australia. So what we've been doing is providing advice to craft distillers. We've been helping to build safety toolkits with the Australian Distillers Association to make sure that the crafters can get access to the information they need to create a safe plant in the first place. And hopefully as well, avoid pitfalls associated with buying equipment that doesn't comply with Australian standards. And Australian standards are very, very strict, perhaps in some ways, even more strict than they are in the UK. That's interesting. And Tom, I'd like to bring you on the conversation here as well. Here's a serious specialist. What are you seeing? And you've been getting across both markets as well. What are some of the particular aspects to consider for companies getting into distilling or distillers that are looking to modify their operation? Thanks, Hamish. It's a pretty significant consideration, I think, for anyone that wants to either start something new or modify an existing piece of plants. And I just to clarify, hazardous areas for our chat means potentially explosive atmospheres. And of course, with distilling, it's about ethanol and the concentrations in these processes. So really what we've got at the moment is our standard for assigning hazardous areas, and that's zones of differing potential for having an explosive atmosphere is based on an IEC, so an international standard. And in Australia and New Zealand, we have 
a whole lot of examples at the back of our standard. That's the difference with our version of that standard. Fairly typically, those examples have been applied more often than not. That's one way of approaching it. The other way is by first principles and There will be an update to the standard this year, I'm expecting. And the major change is that we're going to get the new version of the international standard, but also those examples are going to be pulled out of the back of the standard and published in a supplement. So they won't actually be in the standard. And really what this means is that there is more emphasis on a first principles approach to understanding hazardous areas. And what this means is that we need to have process engineers, mechanical engineers. We need the right information from equipment vendors, ventilation engineers. The list goes on to make sure that we understand the materials in our process. So how could ethanol, liquid or vapor come out of the process and what sort of quantities? And then from that understanding, build up the picture of these are the areas of different risk levels. And then we will engineer the systems in them accordingly. And of course, If we're able to be involved early on, we can influence the design. What we want as far as possible is safety by design so that we don't have unnecessarily large hazardous areas. And that what that also means is it's safer for the people working there. But it also means that there's hopefully a lower cost of compliance because any piece of equipment, if you take a a standard motor and then an explosion protected motor, of course, there's a difference in cost. So there's capital cost there, but there's also OPEX, you know, operational cost increases with that explosion protected equipment. So there's definitely benefits to that first principles approach. And we're seeing that regulators are wanting more understanding from first principles. It also aligns with the Health and Safety Acts that we have in New Zealand and Australia and with the crux of them being understand your hazards and risks and control them appropriately. And so a first principles approach to understanding hazardous areas fits quite nicely, I think, with the requirements of the Health and Safety Work Acts in both countries. It means that you're really directing time and resources to reduce risk where it's most needed and that you don't miss anything. I'm hearing there that change is on the horizon and it's going to be good change because it should help actually to reduce capital cost and make the workplace safer. But as with all things, a little bit of early advice would go a long way. James, what what are some final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with today? Just to reiterate the point, really, craft distilling deals with ethanol and don't think because you're not a large producer like Diageo that you don't have a significant risk in there potentially. What we're seeing is is that even the small distilleries are having quite big consequences in terms of the accidents they have when they don't get it right. And make sure you seek good advice at the outset and you can avoid most of those issues to start with. (laughs) Thanks, James. Uh, Tom, any final thoughts? I think I would just mirror what James has said, and I think you'll end up spending less money a little bit up front um, to get the right advice and the right outcome. Of course, with any project, the further down the road you get, the more expensive it is to fix any given problem. Okay, that's great advice. And with a market that seems to be continuing to grow and proliferate and lots of small startups, hopefully lots of those people have a chance to listen to some of this advice today as well. So I want to thank you very much, James and Tom, for coming along and talking to us today. And thanks to our listeners as well for joining us today and you can be Soundbites. And as we say in New Zealand, until next time, hi at it and goodbye. Mm-hmm.